why God became man. That's the title for us this morning. We're using 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 as the platform from which we will address our topic this morning. We are not going line by line exegetically as we did last week, but we are using it as a platform to discuss the topic that it mentions, namely why God became man, or we might call it the incarnation. In his popular book, Start With Why, Simon Sinek argues that in order to successfully achieve goals, we need to know more than how to accomplish the what we would like to accomplish. We must also know our, guess what, why. In other words, we must know why we should or shouldn't do this thing or that thing. Church, in like fashion, the same truth is applicable to theology, At the zenith or pinnacle of all that God has done in redemptive history, we find that there is a purpose, a why, namely to bring glory to his name and good to his people, and this, of course, is a reference to the incarnation. When we talk about the incarnation, the event that describes Jesus, the word, taking on flesh and living among us, we're talking about what happened, right? When we talk about the virgin birth, God graciously placing the second person of the Trinity by means of the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, we're talking about how it happened. But the real question that I would like us to address today is why it happened. Why did God become a man? Why did the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, become a man? The most popular question that you can ask is not how, because we can always figure out how, or what, because you can figure out what. But the most important question that leads to every other question's answer is why. And today, in light of 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, I want to talk to you about why God became man. Is that all right? Okay. First, you don't have an option. This is what I've got for you today. God became man to save sinners. First and foremost, God became man to save sinners. After a long, adventurous ministry, the Apostle Paul wrote to a young man who he was mentoring. The man's name was Timothy. He wrote about their relationship, the importance of Scripture, how things should be operated within the confines of a local church assembly, how to take care of those in need, and a number of other issues. One of the things that Paul wrote to Timothy about It's confined in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. This is what it says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, Paul says. Or as in the old King James says, of whom I am chief. He refers to himself as the foremost or as the chief sinner because once you get to know Jesus, you realize that in view of who he is, it doesn't really matter how much better you are than somebody else. That's typically what we do. We don't measure ourselves against the glory of God. We measure ourselves against the neighbor who's a lousy husband and a bad father. We measure ourselves next to the lady who's always gossiping about other parents on the sidewalk after she drops off her kids. We're always mentioning who we are or who we aren't in view of who someone else is or isn't. But the reality is we should only be measuring ourselves next to the standard that is Jesus Christ. 
And next to that standard, Paul says, the apostle who is known for three tremendous missionary journeys, essentially turning the known world at the time upside down on its head, he says, in view of all of his accomplishments, I'm nothing but a sinner. In fact, he says to Timothy, in all these years of ministry and studying and learning and revelation, the one thing that I know that I can say is this. Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save sinners. I'd like to start here because there's clarity, there's precision in this verse. Paul wants Timothy to understand this because it is basic to Christianity. Or suggested or have suggested to us often that Christianity is about a number of things, but it doesn't matter whether or not those things are accurate because if this is not accurate, nothing else matters. Jesus Christ became a man to save sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world. We might call that the incarnation. Why did God become a man? To save sinners. Two ideas I want you to see here. First of all, there is sacrifice. Jesus died for sinners like you and me. That is, Jesus died for sinners like you and me. Let me say that again because sometimes we miss the value of the statement in view of the fact that it's been hammered down our throat for years. Jesus didn't die because his ministry became overwhelming. Jesus didn't die because Rome was occupying the land he was doing ministry in. Jesus didn't die because he had a friend betray him within his closest group. Jesus died because it was part of God's foreknowledge and foreordained plan. Jesus died for sinners. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a miscalculation on his part as a CEO of Jesus Industries. Jesus died because that was his father's plan. If you don't believe me, rewind a little bit into the Gospels before Jesus dies, at which point Jesus prays, if there was another way, Father, let it be, but nevertheless, your will be done. You see, Jesus knew all the while that his Father's will was for him to offer his perfect life in exchange for our imperfect life. Jesus dies for sinners like you and me. This is why Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, isn't the center of Christianity, but instead it's Calvary, where Jesus was crucified. The manger is an amazing story, and we believe it to be true. Miraculous, yes, but true nonetheless. But it is not the thing on which Christianity hinges. It's the cross and the resurrection, because Jesus died for sinners like you and me. Hebrews 9, 26 says, Jesus has appeared, that is the incarnation, once for all. How often? Once. Once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, Jesus didn't sacrifice something outside of himself, something foreign to him. He sacrificed himself Once for all, he doesn't have to do it again. The death that he died accomplished his father's will for the salvation of sinners. But there's also, in this idea of 1 Timothy 1.15, atonement. Atonement. Yes, Jesus died as a sacrifice, but in dying for a sacrifice for others, what we have here is atonement. 
When Jesus died for sinners, he died to provide a covering. What's the word? A covering. That's what the word atonement literally means in the original languages, a covering. To talk about the incarnation while ignoring the the atonement is to miss the gospel. Write down these verses, Matthew 26, 27. Jesus says, drink of this cup, all of you, because this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. There it is, atonement. My blood is poured out, why? For the forgiveness of sins. In other words, if sins are going to be forgiven, then the blood of the Son of God must be what? Poured out. Ephesians 1, 7. In him, that is to say in Christ, we have redemption through his what? Blood. Through his blood. The forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see, we're not saved because Jesus was nice. We're not saved because Jesus was articulate. We're not saved because Jesus was single and dedicated his life to others. We're saved because Jesus was perfect and died for us. That's why we're saved. If we believe, of course, that's conditional. But the atonement is, namely, that Jesus became a man to live a life that he would give in lieu of yours and mine. And what's more, it's important to appreciate this truth. The atonement is simply applied to every. It's not applied, excuse me, to everyone indiscriminately. Faith is the means by which a person is atoned for. Faith is the means by which our forgiveness is secured. We're not just forgiven because Jesus died. We're forgiven because Jesus died and we believe. If we believe, then we are forgiven. If we don't believe, we are not forgiven. This is Christianity 101. The incarnation and the eventual atonement that he made for our sin on the cross is the only means of forgiveness and reconciliation to God our creator that is provided for us. Christian Post put out an article this week titled 70% of born-again Christians believe there are multiple ways to get to heaven. This is heresy. What the article's title should have said is 70% of so-called born-again Christians believe that there are multiple ways. If you are a born-again Christian and you believe there are multiple ways, you're only born again in your imagination. There are churches that will cater to that ideology. This is not one of them. In this church, there is no under name given under heaven by which we must be saved. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not Jesus and Buddha and Jesus and karma and Jesus and a little bit of this and that and the other thing. It's Jesus. That's it. That's it. I don't care 70% of whoever or whatever statistic is posted. Don't care. This is all that matters. And if we come with all of our articles and all of our data and come against the word of God and the word of God says no, then Lord, help us to have the conviction to say the data doesn't qualify. Only the word of God matters. And you say, well, if I stick to the word of God, I'm going to be disagreeable with a lot of things. Now you're getting it. Now you're starting to understand. 
It doesn't matter what the title in bold print says. All that matters is what the inspired word of God says. And Peter says, God has given to us no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. No other name. None. James Montgomery Boyce, in his book, Foundations of the Christian Faith, writes this beautiful sentence. The incarnation coming in the midst of a history of human sin indicates that God has not abandoned us, but loves us and values us even in our fallen state. And so Acts 16, 31 says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Not believe in the Lord Jesus and do this, that, and the other thing and you will be saved, maybe. It's not believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, but you might need to go to purgatory for a little while. It's not believe in the Lord Jesus and a few other things. Vote this party line and dislike that party line and you will be saved. It's believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's so simple, it's insulting. But the exclusivity of the gospel is wrapped up in the answer to this question, why did God become a man to save sinners? But that's not all. Secondly, God also became a man to preach the gospel. Luke chapter four, if you would turn there with me. God became a man to die as a sacrifice and atonement for sin. We've covered that. That is certainly the highlight of the story of the life of Jesus Christ. But as we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we learn that Jesus didn't go from the cradle to the grave. He lived an important life that was full of teaching and ministry. In fact, there was so much teaching and ministry that we might even say that his sacrificial death was the culmination of everything that preceded it. Look with me, if you would, at the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 4. I'm going to come up here on the screen if you didn't bring your Bible today or if you're loving on your spouse. When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him, they came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. Get it? I was sent, what's he say? For this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And we have in this passage of scripture the words of our Lord, and he says clearly and with resolution, I have come to preach the gospel, that is the good news of the kingdom of God. That phrase, preach the good news, is one word in the original language in the Greek. It is euangelion. Euangelion, it's the word we get evangelism from. It literally means good news. 
So when we evangelize, what we're doing is sharing the what? The good news. That's what evangelism is. Evangelism is the sharing of the good news. Next question. What is the good news? The good news is all that God has done for sinners in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. It's not complicated. We can add to it. There are other things that fit to it. But simply put, the good news is what God has done for sinners in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's evangelism. And this week, I had to go to the orthodontist because my, my permanent retainer corner came loose. I don't know if it was something I ate or whatever. Anyway, you don't care about that. So I'm sitting there in the chair, reclined in this super vulnerable position while the assistant starts to tell me all her problems. And so this is a very nice office. And so I'm talking to her, and then I start to share. I'm, I'm, I'm reminding her of God's priority. I'm reminding her of the importance of the gospel and submitting to him no matter what, right? And, and, and while I'm talking to her in this super vulnerable position, you know, laid back with this spotlight in my face, I hear, is that my pastor? Down the hallway. <laughs> is that my pastor? All this commotion. Then the, the, the orthodontist comes in. Another assistant comes in. You know this person? You know this person? Joe, you know this person? Linda Hill comes in. Linda Hill comes in. I think she's praying this morning. Linda Hill comes in and says, that's my past. That's my past. Then she starts evangelizing with all of us in there. Let me tell you the story of what God has done in my life and with my pastor and how I've met my pastor. And then, so they're all standing there, and we've got this whole thing going on right then and there in this moment in this orthodontist office because good news is always good news. And you never know when the opportunity is going to present itself when you can say, it sounds like you're going through a lot, but all I can tell you is God loves you and God has great plans for you in Jesus. That's the good news. So I don't know what God is going to do with the seeds. I don't know what God, God's plan is for that family and, and, and their children and the difficulties that they're facing that we all face. I don't know what God is going to do with them, but what I know is that I bump into, well, first, I bump into somebody I know everywhere I go. And then number two, I know that my people share the gospel. We took an opportunity there and tag-teamed the situation and reminded those people, gave a demonstration to those people of what it means to have the gospel shared and demonstrated. Friends, sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is part of who we are. Amen? Amen? This is part of who we are. The Lord came and shared the good news of the kingdom. He said, this is why my Father sent me to preach the good news of the kingdom. And now, as our Lord and Savior has died and resurrected and ascended back to the Father, he tells us, go and share the good news of the kingdom. And the word go, you're familiar with that verse, go and make disciples of all nations, preaching the good news, etc., etc. The, the, the idea there is, <coughs> excuse me, is in the perfect tense. So it's not like go. It's not like a command, like go. It's really as you go. The implication being like as you live your life, as you're sitting in the orthodontist chair and somebody starts to say, oh, my son this, and this is what we're going through, and I've been separated, and this is what I'm challenging. Jesus is saying, as you go, share the good news, man. 
You don't need an angelic light and like be at the corner of like Holy and St. Avenue to share the gospel. Just share the gospel. Share as much as you can share. And if the valve gets turned off and somebody says, I'm not really interested in that, okay, there's your answer. But share the gospel. The Lord came to preach the kingdom. And he tells us to do the same. Theologian Herman Bavink writes this, he is not one prophet among many, but the supreme, the only prophet. He is the source and center of all prophecy and all knowledge of God, both in the Old Testament before his incarnation and in the New Testament after his resurrection and ascension, it is all for him. I love it. Jesus is the preacher of all preachers, but not only is he the preacher of all preachers, but every message is about Jesus. It all culminates in our Savior. He became man to preach the gospel. Thirdly, he became man to conquer death. I'm going to say something, and I want you to hear this. Our faith is inseparably connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our faith is inseparably connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why Dan Brown's assertion a few years ago was so important to that sect of quote-unquote Christianity. Because if the body of Jesus is found in a tomb somewhere, nothing of this matters, not one word. Of course, we haven't found the body. And of course, everything that Dan Brown ever said has been disproven. We can find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is what it reads. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And our faith is in vain. We have even found to be misrepresenting God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Did you get that? No resurrection. What are we doing here? If there's no resurrection, this is nonsense. Why would we put ourselves out there? I mean, we all have things, tendencies. Let's call them what they are, sinful habits that we wrestle against, that we do not participate in for the glory of God, the good of our neighbor. But if Jesus is dead, who cares? If Jesus is dead, why am I, why am I putting the effort and energy into what I do for a living as a calling and a career? Close the church, close the school. Let us eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. That's what Paul says. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, nothing that we say and nothing that we've taught is of any value. But if Jesus is raised, if God did indeed raise Jesus from the dead, which we believe. 
everything matters. Amen. This matters. How you love your spouse matters. How you treat people matters. How you raise your children matters. Whether or not you attend worship matters. If he's dead, it doesn't matter if you're at church. But if he's alive, you better get to worship. I am not your judge, and I am not your jury. But if he's alive, you and I have a lot of answering to do. How will we live? How then shall we live with Christ being risen from the dead? One author writes this, the resurrection of Jesus is God's gift and proof that his death was completely successful in blotting out the sins of his people and removing God's wrath. We have peace with God because Jesus died and rose again, and we place our faith in him, and everything is solidified with the stamp of guarantee that is the resurrection of Jesus. Why did Jesus become a man? To conquer our enemy, death. I love what Martin Luther said. Every man must do two things on his own. Every man must do his own believing, and every man must do his own dying. You will not get out of this alive. Your body's already telling you you're not making it out of here alive, right? Had a crazy few months, been worn out. My body's flat. I took some medicine. I don't know what was in it, but it was good. I sleep like Nosferatu on my, bla on my back like this. I don't even, like, touch the bed. I just kind of hover. But I was so out. I slept on my side. I'm 44, you know? I go to the gym. I'm, I'm okay, all right? My shoulder hurts so bad for four days. Like, four days. I could not lift my arm above. I can now, okay. But I could not lift my hand above my shoulder without it, like, going... This is, this, is, this is my body saying, you're not making it out of here alive. You're not making it out of here alive, man. And you know that too. But there is a resurrection awaiting the people of God. At the sound of the trump and the twinkling of the eye, the Lord will say, come up here, and the dead will be raised, and those that are alive will be raised with him, and so we shall be with him. And how do we know this? Because God raised them from the dead as the first fruits of a witness of what he has planned and in store for us in the future. But if Jesus is dead, not even our faith matters. You think about that when you're suffering. You think about that when the world is telling you to be afraid and to be very afraid. You think about what God said about giving you a new body that is incorruptible. You think about what God said about the resurrection and the life. And you live accordingly. Forget about Fauci and CNN and everybody else. I don't know if you like them, dislike them. I don't really care. I'm your pastor, not your politician. I care that you're living in accordance to this. I know a lot of people are afraid of COVID, but I don't see a lot of fear of the Lord. It's anemic when it comes to fear of the Lord, but fear of COVID... 
like a phantom in the room. He's got to be hiding behind a banner or something, that COVID. He's in here. I know it. Seriously? But when it comes to the fear of the Lord, there's an absence there. You know why? Because you don't think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ enough to help you realize that this life you live will lead to an account and to an eternity. Now, for whom will you live? The other day, Fauci said, maybe we can have Christmas. I'm going to have Christmas. (laughs) I don't care. The scriptures talk about this. Do not follow the leadings of those who issue the word of science falsely so-called. That's the Apostle Paul. Just because they use the word doesn't mean it's true. Get the vaccine. Don't get the vaccine. I don't care what you do. What I care about is this. Do you fear everything and absolutely everyone more than you do the Lord? These are the words of Jesus. Do not fear the one who can kill the body. Right? Fear the one who can send the body and the soul to hell. Some of us are more afraid of a virus than we are the eternal Trinitarian God to whom we must give an account. The Lord did not resurrect his son so that we could live on vacation. The Lord resurrected his son so that he would know, that we would know, our lives are important. And we should live well while we're alive. Amen? Amen. Finally, God gave, excuse me, God became man to give us an example. But finally this morning, I want to finish with this. God became man to give us an example. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God refer to his people in certain ways. Some of you are very well-versed in the Old Testament. You may remember this one. For example, God refers to his people as his vineyard. God says, they are my vineyard. And when Jesus is here on earth, incarnation, in the midst of his disciples, he's teaching them. In John chapter 15, he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. You see, this Jesus isn't only the epitome of Israel. That's why he says that. Jesus says to Israel, God says to Israel, excuse me, you are my vineyard. And when Jesus shows up, he says, I'm the vineyard. I'm the perfect example of what Israel should have been. But not only is he the epitome of what Israel should have been, Jesus is the epitome of what it means to be human. Let me say that again. Jesus is the epitome of what it means to be human. You see, we often look at humanity and then we judge Jesus. But we should be looking at Jesus and going, what kind of human am I? You see the difference? We shouldn't be looking at Jesus and saying, what's Jesus look like in view of my humanity? We should be looking at Jesus and saying, what kind of human am I in view of who Jesus was? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. The apostle Peter says, for to this you have been called. Christ suffered for you, 
And he left you a what? Left you an example. So that you might follow his steps. I don't know this. I didn't look it up, but there's a very high probability that the Greek word for example in this text is tupos. It's the word we get type from. And you know what type is, typing is. And when you're sitting at your Mac, because I know nobody here uses Windows, when, you, when you're sitting at your MacBook, right, and you type J for Jesus, what goes on the screen? J. it. Peter is saying, the Lord put down an example for you to follow. And your example should look, excuse me, your life should look like his example. And Jesus endured hardship. Jesus endured suffering. And Peter says, yes, that's exactly right. He suffered for you. And when he did it, he left you an example so that kina in the Greek, it's a purpose clause, so that you will do it like him. Not so that you wouldn't have to suffer or have a good life or have the pool or have the Mercedes. I don't care if you have all that stuff. Good. Work hard. Buy all that you want. I don't care. But know this. In this life, you will have hardship and your hardship is about growing character and your character is about your hope. In whom do you place your hope? I think our behavior over the last year and a half is revealed in whom we have placed our hope. But when Peter says this, that Jesus gives us an example, I can think of a few things. First of all, Jesus is our example of humility. Jesus is our example of humility. I love what he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and lonely in, lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is humble. The way of Jesus is the way of confident humility. Secondly, he gives us an example of service. This is Mark 10, 45. An example of service in Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man, Jesus says, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Are you willing to serve others out of your satisfaction for Christ? Are you willing to serve others out of your satisfaction for Christ or do you not serve others because your expectation is give me, fulfill me, please me, make me happy? You can't serve when you're empty. You have to go to Jesus and get full. And then you serve because you don't need anything from anybody. You don't serve to get satisfaction, beloved. You serve because you're satisfied. You know why sometimes you guys don't do it? I don't want to do it because she made me mad. She didn't say thank you last time. Or he didn't give me the pat on the back, and he said something nice to somebody else. He didn't say something nice to me. I believe in encouragement. You believe in encouragement. It's biblical, and it's nice. But if you don't get encouraged one time, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know what I mean? Serving is not 
about you. Service is about what Jesus has done for you, being demonstrated with an unselfishness toward others. The Lord came and said, I didn't come to get something from you. I came to give. Are we willing to serve others out of our satisfaction for Jesus? Now, some of you can serve in tremendous ways. Some of you have different schedules, different responsibilities. Some of you have physical ailments. Listen, write a card, get on the phone, send somebody a text message. Send somebody a prayer. I prayed for you today. Here's what I prayed. Is that not a blessing? Have you ever received one of those things? Sometimes Dimey does that. And it's like, oh. But it's a blessing, isn't it? It's a blessing when somebody sends you a message and says, I'm thinking about you, and I prayed for you. You might not have the physical wherewithal to do things like that, but you do have the wherewithal to call someone and say, hey, I heard you're going through some tough times this week. Do you mind if we just take a second? The Lord's laid on my heart. I wanna pray for you in Jesus' name. Find a way to serve and serve. Don't find an excuse not to serve. Be different. Find a way to serve even in the midst of difficulty. And when you serve, you say amen. You're gonna listen to me for a second. Don't complain. If you're gonna complain, don't do it. This is scripture. Let everything be done without grumbling and complaint. If you're gonna complain and grumble, just don't do it. There's enough negativity in the world. If you're gonna do it, do it with the joy of the Lord. Amen? And don't make everybody around you feel like they need to pay the bill because you, you know, bless them with your presence and service. Do it out of your satisfaction with Christ. And then just leave it there. Finally, he gave us an example of love. Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, I don't know that you guys need to go dying for your friends. I think this was Jesus saying, you're my friends, and I'm about to lay down my life for you. But I do think that there are ways that you can, quote, unquote, lay down your life for your friends, and that is saying no to yourself, saying no to a priority of yours, saying no to something you'd rather do when somebody needs your help. You hear what I'm saying? Some of you need to learn this word, no. But others of you need to unlearn the word because you never say yes. It's always no. It's always I'm too busy with what I don't know. We have no CEOs in our church. What is it that's keeping you so occupied with things that you can't serve others? Jesus says, greater love, than, than, greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life. Now, you don't need to die. Jesus has done this for us to the glory of God, amen. But how can you say no to yourself, your priority, your interest, your, ha your hobby, whatever the case is, to serve others, to do something for others? In what area of your life can you say, I'm gonna lay down my life here 
for the good of my church, for the good of this person, for the good of that person, whatever the case might be. I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do it, but I can tell you this. If you pray to the Lord and you say, Lord, is this something I should be laying down my life for? If it is, you'll know. The scriptures reveal it, and there is a conviction that comes along with an honest prayer like that, and it's unmistakable. And to close, why did God become a man? To make a sacrifice, to preach, to conquer the grave, and to give us an example. But another thing that we learn in the incarnation is that God has not given up on us. God has not given up on you, church. And I might even say this, God has not given up on the world. He is still saving sinners like you and me. And isn't that good news? One commentator named Franz Dillich writes, hidden behind the wrath of God is love. Just like the sun is hidden behind clouds. Clouds. 